Welcome to the second quarantine wave of evidence-based radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. So tonight, let's just agree that the news on COVID is pretty self-evident. Omicron is blazing across the world. It is driving healthcare providers to the brink of collapse. The U.S. government continues to be three steps behind with its efforts to control the spread. And ivermectin is apparently still a big thing. And I don't know why. (laughs) Um, And apparently insurance companies are still paying for it. Um, I have long argued that that sort of thing shouldn't happen. And we should, um, you know, prior authorization. I want to note that specifically says that you're giving someone ivermectin because they have a parasitic infection. Um, It's just not good for people and it doesn't work. Um, You know, there's a new study out that says that when you look at people's opinions on COVID, that instead of looking at any of the facts or the science, they're more likely to go with their party affiliation. So if somebody says something that they agree with, but it turns out that that person's from another party, they're almost certainly going to argue with them about it. Everything about this is terrible. And one new unfun fact is that apparently people who have gotten COVID-19 are at an increased increased risk of developing diabetes as a result. So people who didn't have any signs of diabetes before they got covid Apparently, COVID is really bad with blood sugar. And so, yeah, it apparently can lead people to develop uh, diabetes that they'll have for the rest of their lives, most likely. So researchers suspect that this has something to do with the way COVID-19 affects fat cells. So that's fun. Have I mentioned that I continue to be very worried about becoming infected? This is a part of the reason I'm coming to you from my bedroom studio, quote unquote, rather than the actual studio in Florence. So let's press on for today and leave the shadow of COVID behind for tonight. We all know what's going on with COVID. We all know what is the issue here, and I don't know how to make it any better other than forcing people to do things against their will, it seems at this point. And obviously, we can't do that. Though I would be sorely tempted. No, I'm obviously, um, it's, it's very frustrating. And I said I didn't want to talk that much about it tonight. So we are not going to talk that much about it tonight. So let's start with one of those stories that I keep meaning to get to and just had never gotten to. Um, it is a very cool story and well, it's not necessarily a story, a cool description of how a nuclear physicist is showing that, you know, you can do more with nuclear phys- physics than just, uh, you know, build nuclear power plants or blow the world up. And so 
he is talking about how nuclear physics can be used to examine a wide variety of objects. Michael Weischer, a nuclear physicist at the University of Notre Dame, talked about his work this past October during a virtual meeting of the American Physical Society's Division of Nuclear Physics. And so it turns out that he works on projects with undergraduate students in a course that's focused on physics, physics-based methods and technologies in art and archaeology. The course attracts students from across the spectrum, from physics and chemistry majors to art restoration, history, and anthropology majors. And I have to admit, I am quite jealous. If there had been anything like this when I was a student, I would have jumped at the chance in order to do it. And so, yeah, I am very jealous. Um, and so, yeah. Oh boy, wouldn't I enjoy doing that right now instead of having to worry about COVID? I would like to do that much more than this. <laughs> okay, so students in the course can get certified as operators of a wide range of advanced physics-based investigative tools, including Raman spectrometers, transmission electron microscopes, or TEM, a 3MV tandem accelerator, handheld X-ray fluorescence scanners, micro XRF scanners, and X-ray diffractometers, among others. Some of those I've never even heard of, frankly. The course covers topics from non-destructive analysis of paintings and manuscripts, analysis of inks used by medieval scribes, examinations of possible forgeries, like the Vinland map, which was always going to turn out to be a forgery, but it's nice to have someone actually say, why, yes, this is indeed a forgery. And discussions of carbon dating, using the example of the Shroud of Turin, which is all sorts of confusing and bewildering, and is a good lesson for how, you know, we can't always say, well, this is carbon dated to this, and then, you know, have that be the last answer um, or the last word. And even how Luis Alvarez used cosmic rays to search for hidden chambers in the pyramids during the 1960s. Pretty sure someone did that recently as well. That was one of the ways in which they were trying to find if there were uh, hidden chambers in... Uh, the Tutankhamun tomb, if I remember right. Um, and so, yeah. Um, but anyways, in 2016, he took on the analysis of a rare 15th century Ill illuminated Breton manuscript. Weicher and team combined micro XRF elemental mapping with Raman spectroscopy. The first mapped the various elements present, as well as individual particles of pigment and how they were distributed in a given region. The latter looked at the molecular composition of the pigments themselves. They determined that the work was probably illustrated by a single artisan or a group of artisans using a single palette of pigments. So basically what they found was that there weren't a bunch of different kinds of pigments 
there was just one kind of pigment. And so unless people were sharing that very specific pigment on different trays, basically, it was probably one person or it was one person at a time using the same set of paints. And so that makes a fair amount of sense. And so in 2019, he turned to an analysis of Roman denarii. Now, the silver denarius was basically the $20 bill of the Roman Empire between 200 BCE and 300 CE. Um, maybe the quarter, but it was, I think, worth more than a quarter. So I just thought of, you know, $20 bills have unfortunately become a ubiquitous thing with ATMs and such. Um, though it would be nice if they were able to uh, distribute smaller amounts of money because uh, not everyone has that $20 to take out of their account necessarily. But anyways, <laughs> we're not talking about the uh, <laughs> economics of poverty tonight. <laughs> so anyways, he found, for instance, that despite a rather colorful reputation, to say the least, Emperor Nero's coins, circa 65 AD, were as advertised. The ruler had declared that coins had to be 92.5% silver in order to protect against inflation and devaluation. So again, we don't really know how much of what's taught, taught about Nero or told about Nero, I should say, is true. Um, certainly he didn't fiddle while Rome burned. Um, he wasn't nearly as bad to the Christians as is sometimes made out. Um, you know, this with Roman, uh, emperors, a lot of this has bias, obviously, because as we all know, history is written by the victors. And, um, <laughs> goodness knows we have a lot of that going on in America. Um, and oddly enough, we have the opposite. Um, which has always confused the heck out of me. And so um, I'm going to go off on this aside for a moment. I hope you don't mind. A lot of what was written about the Civil War was actually written by Southern historians. And if you already know this, I'm sorry. Um, but it's it's a real cultural artifact. And so that's where we get a lot of the sort of, um, you know, hagiography of the lost cause and about how uh, it wasn't about slavery, it was about states' rights. And it's because a lot of that history was written by Southern sympathizers. And this was considered okay. It was some sort of, um, you know, I feel like it was some sort of misguided attempt to um, you know, reach out an olive branch in order to help bring people uh, into the fold um, again. And um, yeah, it's very weird and um, has a lot of far-reaching consequences, um, <laughs> obviously. Um, <laughs> so yeah, um, it's just, it's very weird. And so we always have to remember that about history, obviously, is that you have to examine where the sources are coming from. Unfortunately, 
much like in science, history is never a hundred percent true. Um, even when you're saying facts, you might say some facts and leave out other facts because of your bias. And so there are a lot of parallels between history and science, um, which is good since they're my two favorite things. Um, <laughs> it's good for them to have parallels. Um, but yeah, so very interesting and a total aside. Um, <laughs> so let's get back to Nero. Nero was one of the most fiscally responsible of his progenitors and successors, sticking to the laws in the way of having the coins minted, said Weischer. But they found that as time went on, the percentage of silver decreased as the rulers used the excess silver to fund ongoing wars throughout the empire. By 295 CE, the coins had only around 5% silver remaining. And so Weischer and his class this time combined XRF scaling and PIKES or PIXE mapping to test the quality of the coins and learn about how they were minted. They also used electron spectroscopy to determine the silver content and how impurities were distributed. And so they found that most coins were composed of silver and copper, and that impurities of sulfur and iron um, could lead to corrosion. Corrosion. Now, you've probably heard of the bite test, and you might think of it as for gold, which is what I kind of did. But apparently, ancient merchants also used it for silver, which apparently has a distinctive taste. I don't know. I haven't gone around biting any of my um, <laughs> my silver jewelry recently, and I didn't think it was a good idea to try it now just to tell you whether or not it had a distinctive taste. <laughs> I don't have that much, to be honest. And so in order to fool merchants and buyers alike, honestly, the minters developed tricks to keep the toy, the coins tasting authentic. One technique called for throwing a mixed silver copper coin into liquid mercury in order to cause the silver to dissolve and flow around the coin. Then you remove the coin from the mercury bath and, it, and heat it up to drive the mercury out, says Weischer. And so you're basically left with a coin that has a copper core, but a silver shell good enough to pass the bite test. And interestingly, this same adulterating technique became common once again many, many, many years later in Spain's Latin American colonies. And so silver reals from between the 16th and 18th centuries from Mexico and the infamous silver mines at Potosí in Bolivia show a dramatic drop between 1645 and 1648 especially, with the percentage plummeting from 92.5% sterling to just 70 to 80%. Unfortunately, the Spanish were not as savvy as the Romans and were found out. This led to a massive devaluation of the coins as the silver market in Spain crashed and devastated the economies of the colonies. 
Now, some of those reals actually ended up in the early American colonies, where the Boston Mint, actually, issued coins between 1653 and 1686, and again, added a bit of copper or iron to increase their profits. It wasn't until 1690 that paper money began circulating in the colonies. Again, the Massachusetts Bay Colony was first, and so they first created printed uh, paper currency in order to pay soldiers to fight against the French in Canada. And the other colonies followed, though there was no centralized system of value at this time. It's almost like a little bit like Bitcoin. Anyways, we're not talking about that in any way, shape, or form. Um, (laughs) Please don't at me. Um, Initially, government printers would make indentations in the cut of the bill, which would be matched to a master before exchanging for coins. But since these were printed on simple paper, they were prone to damage, obviously, and thus could technically be made worthless if you you know, ripped it in the wrong way. And the they said, well, this doesn't match our cutting. That's not great. <laughs> so cue Benjamin Franklin, my favorite flawed founding father. <laughs> Franklin was well known for being, well, a bit of an overachiever. Also, apparently a bit of a womanizer, also a bit of a um, egoist, all sorts of bits of things. (laughs) By the time he was 23, he was already a successful newspaper editor and printer in Philadelphia, where he wrote scads of absolute ripping yarns masquerading as news reports. He first published the Pennsylvania Gazette and then the infamous Poor Richard's Almanac, again, both of which had an interesting take on telling the truth, Um, though that was common in uh, newspapers of the day, which is, again, another reason why sometimes history is hard, because it's not always easy to tell what is uh, truth and what is fiction when you are looking at these uh, early newspapers. Um, It's not really until the 20th century where news becomes much more uh, just the facts, ma'am, even though some would argue it still has not yet to this day actually managed to get anything like that. Um, And so, yes, he was obviously, being a printer, after all, a strong advocate of paper money. Uh, so yes, no ulterior motive at all there. Um, sorry, again, I really like Franklin. Um, he, you know, had his faults like every one of the founding fathers, but at least he made stuff and did fun things. And, you know, he was the kind of founding father who could be found in a tall tale, um, you know, next to Paul Bunyan or uh, Johnny Appleseed, whereas some of the others are just, you know, the less we say about um, some of them, the better. Though, um, you know, ah, very complicated, some of them. Uh, I'm looking at you, Jefferson. But anyways, again, that is off topic. 
And so in 1736, Franklin was printing money for New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Delaware. He designed the first currency of the Continental Congress in 1775, which featured the 13 colonies as a link, as linked rings forming a circle within which was the phrase, we are one. And, uh, actually, <laughs> funnily enough, on the, uh, obverse, <laughs> it said, mind your business. Because of course it did. And again, forgers immediately took on the challenge. For instance, British authorities introduced forgeries of the newly printed continental currency on a large scale to instigate inflation and a collapse of the early American economic system, Weischer said. Franklin and his network constantly generated new ways to distinguish fake bills. And in fact, we still use some of those techniques today. In 1739, Franklin's currency for Pennsylvania deliberately misspelled the name. Franklin assumed that the counterfeiters would correct the name in their versions, thinking that they were getting someone else's badly done (laughs) counterfeit. Franklin also made his own inks. And according to Franklin, he used a mercury sulfide red ink and bone black ink, which was made from carbonized carbonized animal bones. But remember what we know about Franklin. And so it turns out that this was bunk. He actually made his notes with an ink made from pure graphite. And so x-ray analysis of British fakes shows the phosphorus and calcium uh, signatures of bone black ink, proving that they fell for the trap. He continued to innovate by printing currency with images of leaves that were incredibly detailed and thus hard to copy. He apparently made lead casts of actual leaves in order to create the stamps for this part of the currency. And, saving the best for last, he started to add slivers of mica to the paper used for printing money. The mica came from a mound behind his house and had a unique composition revealed by electron microscopy. So unless the forgers were stealing mica in the dead of night from literally behind his house, they would have been hard-pressed to copy this feature. And so it is very cool how we can learn all of this using these advanced uh, nuclear types of um, microscopy and um, all sorts of other ways in order to investigate, um, you know, seeing what the composition of the inks are, seeing um, if there are different pigments showing up in uh, medieval manuscripts Looking at uh, one of the projects he also did that I didn't talk about was that he looked at Vermeer's and um, did some analysis there. And um, it's just really cool to think about how he was, how, you know, uh, nuclear physicists are able to use what is often considered a kind of a dodgy uh, science at this point, um, unfortunately, 
to do things that are actually really cool and useful. And, um, of course, these are things that can help with, uh, art conservation for one thing, because if you know the actual composition of the inks and the paper and everything like that, not only can you do things like find forgeries, you can also alert people to what kind of preservation might be needed depending on what the actual um, inks are and things like that. Um, and I don't think it's true necessarily, but for instance, there might be something that you would do differently for something that was made from um, bone black ink versus made from simply graphite. Um, and if you believed Franklin and thought it was bone black, you might incorrectly preserve it. Okay, we are going to take a moment now um, because my next story is pretty long too, and it actually does dovetail nicely into this though. We're going to talk about uh, tempera, and so please do come back uh, or stay tuned for that. Um, we're just going to do a couple show promos and some PSAs, and then we will come back and talk about uh, tempera paint. So thank you. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have 
our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Welcome back. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. So again, we are going to move on and talk about another study, which is very art-focused this time. And so a team from the Sorbonne University in France have examined recipes and the resultant chemistry of tempera paints. Tempera has actually been used for centuries and across the globe from India's rock-cut temples to early Egyptian sarcophagi to especially medieval and early Renaissance painting. And so eventually it would give way to oil-based paints, though some people still work in tempera for various artistic reasons. Think Andrew Wyeth or uh, Jacob Lawrence, who I just discovered through this subject and in who is a very cool uh, African-American artist. Um, And so, interestingly, while oil-based paints have been extensively researched, Tempera's literature is actually rather sparse, uh, which is weird considering there is so much of it across such a large swath of uh, time and geography. And so that's where this new paper comes in. Published in the journal Agavante Chemie, um, German, uh, for <laughs> applied chemistry. So I am sure that I mispronounced it, but I tried my best. Uh, the paper looks at the underlying chemistry of tempera, especially from medieval works, to aid in ongoing conservation efforts. So what exactly is tempera? Tempera refers to a fast-drying paint in which color pigments are mixed with a water-soluble binder, usually egg yolk, and often enhanced with vinegar or some similar substance in order to prevent cracking after the paint has dried. And so basically, you would take the pigments and you would mix them with um, the egg yolk and then you would dry it back out, and then you would have um, paint that would be able to then be thickened um, or would be able to be um, hydrated with water, and then you would be able to use it as a pigment. Now, um, you would do this basically directly on the palette or in a bowl because you can't really leave it around because it just dries out. Sometimes liquid myrrh would be added to mask the odor uh, (laughs) because obviously it's got egg yolk in it and doesn't necessarily smell great. 
Uh, and so water would need to be continually added again to keep the mixture from drying out. And the paints had to be mixed while working because the egg would begin to cure, thickening the paint if left too long. So this is really a temperamental kind of material. Um, and so I'm su not surprised that uh, a lot of people, when oil came out, were like, oh, oil paints. Yes, please. Uh, I don't have to do hardly anything with these. I think that's amazing. <laughs> um, and so, yes. Tempera is also best uh, placed on wood. So um, a lot of tempera is on wood panels rather than on canvas, as it would tend to crack and chip on uh, what I assume is a less rigid surface. So basically, it's temperamental. Um, and so it's better to have a stiff matrix behind it. The paint, though, is extremely long-lasting. And though less vivid than oil paints, it can often have a uh, jewel-like quality, quote-unquote, after it has dried. It also doesn't blend well, so artists, artists usually achieve color mixing via either cross-hatching techniques or overlays. And so it tends to be um, compared to, for instance, pastels or colored pencils. Examining the literature, they found that most papers to date focused on identifying the binders or modeling how the paints might degrade over time. Given the widespread use of tempera during a large portion, again, of the history of European painting, they were also surprised that more work had not been done examining the molecular interactions between the egg yolk binder and various pigments. The structure and composition of yolk has been studied in the agro-food industry, but although it has been used in paint for centuries, its structure, organization, and properties have never been studied in any depth in paint, they wrote. For their work, the researchers focused on recreating a harmless tempera called green earth, or terra verde, which is a clay-based pigment. Uh, I say harmless because some of the pigments used during medieval times were rather toxic, including lead white, orpiment, or arsenic sulfide, and cinnabar, or mercury sulfide. So obviously, clay seemed like a better option. <laughs> and green earth was actually a very widespread pigment used as an undercoat for areas that were gilded or as an underpaint for flesh tones. So it's actually a pretty widely used one, so it's good to know its specific properties, um, and it also helps that it's non-toxic. <laughs> so they followed recipes for green earth tempera paints from the treatise Il Libro della Arte by the 14th century Italian painter uh, Cennino Cennini. It's basically a so-you-want-to-be-a-painter guide for the 14th century's inspiring artist. It's got a bunch of how-tos, how to mix paints, how to do sorts of things like that, and obviously, um, and apparently has like a little bit of like tips of the trade and a little bit of how to get started, so really a so-you-want-to-be-a-painter kind of thing. <laughs> One tempera batch was a mixture of green earth pigment and egg yolk, while another was a mixture of green earth suspended in water um, as comparison. 
each paint was then applied to a canvas. They used two techniques, rheology, which is an analysis of how the materials deform, and NMR relaxometry, which is an, an analysis of mama- sorry, an analysis of magnetic moments in atoms and of the nuclear relaxation spins, which gives a sort of fingerprint for molecular dynamics. I can't begin to really explain what they're saying there, um, because spin is still something that makes no sense to me, and relaxation of spins, I'd, it's a fancy way of saying that they looked at uh, various properties of the atoms in the molecules um, and how they interact with each other, um, from what I can gather. And so uh, they did this in order to explore the properties and structures of the two mixtures. Both exhibited shear, which is thinning in which a fluid's viscosity decreases with increased strength. Think smushing the paint with a paintbrush into the canvas. But the temperer paint had higher viscosities. This demonstrates an important synergistic effect between green earth and egg yolk in tempera paint, the authors wrote. Its consistency is considerably higher than that of a green earth water dispersion. And so they found that there is a network that forms between the protein in the egg yolk, water molecules, and the clay particles in the pigment. This increases the tempera's elasticity and increases the spreadability and coverage of the egg yolk tempera. This study does not claim to solve or answer all questions with regards to the importance of the binder type or the ability of paint to be applied to a surface, the authors concluded. Rather, it shows the great interest of combining these two techniques applied to artistic paint materials to give new insight into a, into the network binder pigment and put oneself in the painter's shoes, they concluded again. Um, so yeah, basically, this was a, nobody's looked at this sort of stuff. Maybe we should kind of a thing. Obviously, not definitive. Obviously, more work needs to be done. Um, but it is really cool. Um, and it's interesting to see how different the two kinds of uh, pigment look. And so the one with uh, egg yolk in it is much thicker. It looks almost like um, the clay you have before you would throw a pot um, rather than the one that's just in water, which just looks like regular um, paint. And so that was really interesting. Okay, um, we are going to move on now from the world of art and we are going to talk about the moon. We've talked a lot about the moon lately, and so I hope that you'll indulge me some more. Um, it apparently seems to be the thing to talk about recently. Now, first off, I wanted to quickly note that if you were still wondering about the quote-unquote mysterious hut viewed by the U-2-2 rover, that's one of China's rovers on the far side of the moon, uh, you'll be pleased to find out that it was nothing more than a big rock. Um, I think we all knew that's what it would be. Um, <laughs> but one of the headlines was like, terrible disappointment, it's just a rock. Um, and I'm paraphrasing, obviously. But yeah, of course, it was always just going to be a rock. 
Um, I'm sorry, aliens are not on the moon. Um, ah, that's just one of those things that we just have to get over. <laughs> um, they are not on the moon. And if they are on the moon, they would be way better at, uh, you know, hiding themselves than that. <laughs> so yes, just a big rock, just a weirdly shaped rock. Um, which again, we always knew that was going to be the answer. Uh, so yeah. All right. Let's talk about some more evidence-based studies of the moon. <laughs> so I wanted to talk about, uh, something that we actually didn't know about until we went to the moon and were able to orbit it and actually see what was going on. And so... Obviously, the two sides of the moon are very different in appearance. The side that faces us has all of these big mare, which are basically cooled uh, magma uh, lakes, um, or a lot of them are at the bottom of impact craters, but, you know, they have this very smooth and darkened appearance. Whereas the other side of the moon, the dark side of the moon, is much more um, rough and, uh, has a lot less, um, you know, of these mare. And so the other thing about this is that not only do they look different, they actually have different chemical compositions in the rocks. And so again, when we started to actually go to the moon, we were able to see what is called the South Pole Aitken Basin. And it's actually one of the largest impact craters in the entire solar system. But it wasn't easy to find, again, <laughs> because almost all of it is in the dark side of the moon. And so we could only see a little bit. And then when we started to orbit, we saw a what turns out to be a 1,553-mile, give or take, crater. <laughs> Uh, and so it's pretty darn big. <laughs> and so this impact would have happened after the magma ocean period for the moon, um, because the features solidified after impact. So basically, the uh, surface had to already be cooled so that you could actually get an impact crater, because if the um, object had impacted into a magma ocean, it would have just kind of smoothed back over and you wouldn't have this giant, obvious, humongous crater. <laughs> and so even though it is uh, younger than that, it's still clearly quite old and could have formed before much of the volcanism that created those mare on the other side of the moon. And so it turns out that if you look at the moon, most mare are found in the north region of the near side, directly opposite the impact site. And so a team of Chinese researchers decided to create a model to see if the two regions were indeed linked. They created a simulation that accounted for the impact and for the interior to be affected by additional heat and material from the impact, 
as well as the gravitational influence of the Earth. They model, their model shows that the heat from the impact is enough to restart convection within the interior of the moon. But because there is not only heat, but also debris that was thrust into the interior from this impact, the convection was disrupted as the new material gradually spread out from the interior in all directions. The convection currents are what allows warmer, deeper material to rise to the surface and pulls cooler materials towards the interior, just like in modern convection currents uh, in the deep earth and, um, you know, I hope you know what a convection current is. <laughs> it's pretty straightforward. Um, and so because of the architecture of the impact, only the surface completely opposite the impact had the full effects of the restarted convection and thus the volcanism that created those mare. And another facet is that the material from the interior has higher concentrations of radioactive isotopes, which again provide their own source of heating and prolonged the volcanism even further. And so this doesn't happen with every large impact. Uh, the moon's impact crater just happened to be at the uh, correct angle and velocity. And so the researchers suggest that samples from the Chang'e landing site might provide further evidence for the hypothesis. And so there are actually other hypotheses for the asymmetry found on the moon. Um, and so time will tell if we can reconcile these models and perhaps bring back samples that will answer some of these questions. And so, yeah, that's pretty interesting. And it makes a lot of sense if you think about it. When something that, uh, you know, uh, big and hard smacks into something that's already, uh, has the, um, what am I trying to say? The, um, crust is already formed. So you get that impact. You're going to have that sort of, uh, thrusting of materials through towards the core. Um, that makes a lot of sense to me. And so we were talking about the fact that previous to that, there was a global uh, magma um, ocean. And so um, let's talk about that for a minute. So researchers from the University of Cambridge and the École Normale Supérieure de Lyon in France have proposed a new model for how the crust of the moon was created. They've devised this model, which shows crystallization. Um, and so what they have found were that the crystals would have remained suspended in liquid magma in a sort of lunar slush, which froze and solidified over hundreds of millions of years. Now, why did they have to do this? Well, writing in the journal Geophysical Review Letters, they did this because they're trying to explain how the moon is covered with relatively light rocks called anorthrosites. 
This rock formed early in the history of the moon, between 4.3 and 4.5 billion years ago. In order to explain the large amount of anorthosite found on the moon, models show that it would have required a global magma ocean. Now again, we know about this magma ocean. Uh, it's from when the moon was first created and the uh, two protoplanetary masses smashed into each other. One became the moon and a lot of the mass, I'm sorry, one became the earth and a lot of the mass that came off of the earth became the moon. And so that produces a lot of heat, obviously. Uh, and so it was able to turn the entire mantle of the moon into molten magma. Since the Apollo era, it has been thought that the lunar crust was formed by light anthracite crystals floating at the surface of the liquid magma ocean, with heavier solids, heavier crystals solidifying it at the ocean floor, said co-author Chloe Michau of the École Normale Supérieure de Lyon. This flotation model explains how the lunar highlands may have been formed. However, since that time, there have been extensive study of lunar meteorites, and it turns out that the pattern for lunar anothrocytes is more heterogeneous in composition than originally thought, which contradicts the flotation scenario. The lunar anothrocyte ranges over 200 million years, but the solidification of a liquid magma ocean would only have been around 100 million years. Given the range of ages and composition of anthracites on the moon and what we know about how crystals settle in solidifying magma, the lunar crust must have formed through some other mechanism, said co-author Professor Jerome Neufeld from Cambridge's Department of Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics. So they devised a new mathematical model which allows for the observed conditions they found that in low lunar gravity, the settling of crystal is difficult, especially given the crystal content, especially given the convection currents that would uh, move the crystals in the magma ocean. And so if the crystals remain suspended in a crystal slurry, then the crystal content of the slurry could increase until a tipping point was reached where it became thick and sticky and deformation deformation began to slow. This would have happened more readily at the surface where there is obviously cooling happening faster. So you would end up with a rich lunar crust and a hot, well-mixed, slushy interior. We believe it's in this stagnant quote-unquote lid that the lunar crust formed as lightweight anatherite-enriched melt percolated up from the convecting crystalline slurry below, said Newfield. We suggest that cooling of the early magma ocean drove such vigorous convection that crystals remained suspended as a slurry, much like the crystals in a slushy machine, which is a very cool thing to think about. <laughs> Um, I thought that was a fantastic visual. Um, okay. So obviously, uh, if you are keeping up, uh, with, uh, our friends at NASA and, um, 
have been paying any attention to the news at all, uh, you know that I have pretty much buried the lead of this entire episode. Um, I am very excited that uh, NASA's new space telescope has successfully deployed the most important parts. Um, and so it is very exciting. Um, and so, uh, yes, all that origami is coming to fruition and has opened properly and all of that is out of the way. Um, obviously there's still some, uh, things that need to happen. Uh, it still needs to reach the Lagrange point. Uh, there needs to be some, you know, adjusting and some firing up of instruments and figuring things out. But NASA's really good at that. Um, and so what people were really holding their breath about was, um, the opening of the telescope. Um, and so yes, uh, of the sun shield and the mirror array, which are now both successfully deployed. Um, and so since deployment, for instance, the side facing the sun is hovering at a uh, rather uh, balmy 131 degrees Fahrenheit, while the shadow side is now at negative 390 degrees Fahrenheit and dropping. So this is extremely good news. Uh, hooray for NASA and the ESA for another amazing, amazing project that has totally, uh, you know, is going to be absolutely historic and absolutely amazing. Um, unfortunately, I do have to take this time to be a little disappointed. Um, you will notice that I have not used the proper name for this telescope. Um, and you may know this already, or you may not have known because not a ton of people have been talking about it. Um, but obviously, uh, James Webb was, as far as I'm concerned, not the greatest guy. Um, he did a lot for NASA. That's true. Um, but there is good evidence to suggest that he was, uh, very much involved in, um, projects during the, uh, 70s and 80s, especially, um, and even before that to, uh, purge people who were, um, uh, gay or lesbian from the government. Um, you might've heard of the Lavender Scare. This is during that time. And he was very much a part of it as far as we can tell. And, um, so yeah, that's very unfortunate. And I don't think that, especially in this day and age, we necessarily want a major piece of our 21st century uh, exploration of the universe to be named after someone who had such a checkered past. And I think that NASA really failed to uh, show some leadership here. And I know that they'll say that you know, oh, well, it was too late by the time people brought it up and things like that. But it was never too late. There's always time to make a right, to make a wrong right. And um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's very frustrating to me. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's unfortunate. But, you know, 
we'll take the win. Um, cause this is a huge win and it is, you know, the next generation, uh, it is not going to necessarily replace Hubble. It does things slightly different. It looks at the near infrared, which is why it had to be in space because in order to look through at the near infrared, it has to be very, very cold. And the only place that we know of that's very, very cold in that respect all the time is, of course, the vacuum of space, um, or the pseudo vacuum of space, since space is not a true vacuum. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, um, it is amazing. It is wonderful. I will probably not be calling it, uh, uh, if anything, I'll be calling it the, uh, JW, uh, space telescope or just NASA's space telescope. Um, it's just a, you know, personal preference thing. Um, I'm not going to get mad at people who use it because it is the name of it, unfortunately, but, um, I am a little disappointed in that, though I am absolutely over the moon excited about what the future holds now that it is almost certainly going to be successfully deployed completely uh, in the near future and be able to start looking into the deep, deep past of our universe. And I don't think that we should bury that. Um, <laughs> I think that is very, very cool and important. Um, so yeah. All right. That's all the time we have for tonight. Uh, thank you for listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.